Good to be with you all this morning. My name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. Uh, Welcome. At Christ the King, uh, we are a church that's trying to reach Houston with the good news of Christ. And we're trying to see lives renewed by grace. What this really means is that everything that we do here is about Jesus. Uh, When we are trying to reach our city, we're not doing it for our own sake. We're not doing it for our brand. We're trying to do it for Jesus. And when we say we hope to see lives renewed by grace, what this means is that we think that we can't do it ourselves. Lives aren't renewed by our effort. They're not renewed by our morality. Lives are renewed by grace. And so we need Jesus for that. Um, and I'm excited to, to be looking at this, uh, this passage with you all this morning from John chapter 1, because really it, it's, it's all about Jesus. And if, if someone were to ask me, what verse in the Bible, show me, show me a passage in the scripture for why you're a Christian, I think I might take them to this passage, John 1, because like a lot of commentators I've been reading as I've studied this have said, this is a great summary of, of what God has done in the world and what he's done through his son, Jesus. So let's direct our attention now to God's word in John chapter one. If you want to grab one of those black Bibles in front of you, you'll find it on page 886. Hear now God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask now that you would help us to see you for who you are, to see your grace and our need for it. And we ask that you would do this for our sake and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So two things I want to look at with you guys today. First, who Jesus is, and second, what Jesus does. Who Jesus is, what Jesus does. Um, But first I want to tell you about my favorite concert I ever went to. So 
In 2006, I was um, a college student in Nashville, Tennessee, and this guy named Sufjan Stevens was coming to town. And he was going to play a show at the Ryman Auditorium, which is where the, the Grand Ole Opry used to be. And this, this kind of hallowed hall in Nashville it used to be a church building that was recommissioned, repurposed for uh, a concert venue. So I get there and all of Sufjan Stevens' weirdness and glory is kind of set on the stage. There's this strange backdrop that looks like a, a kid's playground and forest. And then there's xylophones and banjos and violins and electric guitars and bass guitars and p grand pianos and every, all these crazy instruments, a full brass section. They're all sitting on the stage. And everyone was eagerly waiting in anticipation for this to start. And the lights go completely dark in the concert hall. And then the music starts to play. And you hear banjo and xylophone and bass and brass and strings. And it's getting louder and louder. And all of, all of the elements of the songs from his album that we were going to hear are being played, but they're kind of being played one over the other. And it's all, it sounds kind of good, but almost terrible because it's all happening all at once and it's getting louder and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, silence. And boom, spotlight, center stage, Sufjan, seated at the grand piano, singing a cappella, And all of us are just on the edge of our seat. And that's what I thought of when I was reading this passage. Because this passage is in many ways like a symphonic overture where all of these things, if you know what an overture is, it's where if you go to a symphony or a concert, all the elements of music that are going to be explored in that symphony are kind of introduced in the overture. You get a taste of it, you get a hint of it. And that's what's happening here in the book of John. John, who's a literary master, I think we're gonna see as we study this together more over the coming year, is weaving together all of these themes that he's going to explore here in this prologue to the book that he's writing, which in many ways is like an overture. He's exploring the themes of light and dark, transcendence, imminence, themes of witness and belief, rejection, reception, word, flesh, new birth, children of God, grace upon grace, and then it crescendos into this moment, into the spotlight moment right at the end of the overture. And you hear the Apostle John, who's holding our attention in his hand, sing out, no one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he's made him known. So that's what I wanna look at with you is this crescendo moment in this overture that John is proclaiming to us. No one has seen God, and yet the only God who's at the Father's side has made him known to us. He's introducing who Jesus is. Jesus is the word of God. We talked a little bit about this last week. He is the word of God, that Greek word, Logos, he is the logic or the reason of God. He is God made flesh to us. He's God's word to us. Think about how, how can you really know what someone is like? 
Maybe there's someone here that you want to get to know. You can observe them, you can watch them from afar, you can notice their habits. I'm starting to sound like a stalker now, right? Yeah. But you can, you can observe them, but you don't really know them until you've had a conversation with them, until you've spent time with them face to face having a conversation. And what John is saying is that this is God's word about himself to us, Jesus Christ. Jesus is God revealing himself and what he is like to us. God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. Christy and I, during the, during the pandemic, when everyone was looking for stuff to watch on TV, we got, we, we, y'all are gonna judge me, okay? It's fine, I'm okay with it. But we watched a show, just the first season, called Married at First Sight on Netflix. And it's, the premise is exactly that. People agree to get married without ever meeting. They, they just, they show up, like I had an altar, and their bride comes down, and they get married. And during, <laughs> during the first episode, the pastor, who is for some reason presiding over this wedding, says... He says, Amber, Amber, Matt's family and friends would like you to know that he is as loyal as they come. Once Matt is committed to something, he's all in. He'll stand by you for as long as you stand by him in this marriage. Just kind of, anyway, that's maybe not the best agreement. But, you know, you've got these two people and she's hearing all about Matt from Matt's friends. But how does Amber really know who Matt is, this person that she's about to make vows with? She can hear words said to her about Matt, but she doesn't know him until he moves in, and then it gets real. And spoiler alert, it definitely gets real with Matt and Amber. (laughs) And y'all, in a very real way, Jesus is God moving in. He is God's further revelation to us about himself because Jesus is God. The word was with God and the word was God, John tells us. John says in verse 10 that the world was made through Jesus. John tells us in verse three that without Jesus was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, John makes this incredible claim that the word Become, becomes flesh. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the fleshed out truth about God, about who God is. It's an audacious claim that this first century peasant named Jesus of Nazareth is just as much God as his father. That if you want to know what God is like, you can look at Jesus. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known to us. This means that if you want to know who God is, John says, look at Jesus. Do you wanna know how God responds to our sin? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how God thinks about self-righteous religious people? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how God reacts to our shame? Look at Jesus. 
Do you want to know how God feels about death? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know what God thinks is glorious? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how committed God is to saving people who are his enemies? Look at Jesus. I remember sitting on my back porch with a student during COVID uh, when I was a campus minister at UT and she was having a total crisis of faith. Um, She was looking at just the mess of our world and even just the mess of the evangelical church in America and was feeling really disenfranchised and really wanted to, to turn from the faith. And she was sitting on our back porch crying about this and really seriously considering just being done with it all. And, and my, final, my final plea to her was this. What about Jesus? And she just began to weep. She began to weep because she couldn't turn her back on Jesus. Because of who Jesus has revealed himself to be. Now, I, God's people, sinners like me, we can, we can give who Jesus is a pretty bad rap sometimes. But God has revealed himself fundamentally to us in his word and in his word made flesh, his son, Jesus. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. God did not just give the world words about himself. He moved in. And what this means is that there's not like the nice New Testament version of God and the old, mean Old Testament version of God. Like, I've heard, heard y'all say, some of y'all say this to me before. Like, gosh, God in the Old Testament seems kind of, kind of grumpy, grouchy. I'm, I like Jesus, though. Jesus seems great. But what, is there, are there two, is, is it two different... Scenario, two different God thing going, it's not. Jesus is God further revealing to us the truth about himself. And so we understand what God was up to and who he's revealing himself to be in the Old Testament through Jesus because Jesus tells us to do that. He tells us to do that. When Philip asks Jesus later in the book of John in John 14, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus' response is this. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. And this is so, so unique to Christianity. Again, it's it's one of the reasons why I would go to the book of John if someone wanted to know why are you a Christian. Because John is saying something that is totally unique in like the pantheon of all the religions in the world. Kids, you're probably at some point going to have someone tell you, well, yeah, Christianity is just like one of the many religions, but there's lots of ways to get to God. And you can say, no, Christianity is really different in a lot of ways. And this is one that's really big. It's because God becomes a man. There's no other religion like that. There's no other religion where God is so invested in saving us that he becomes a man. He puts on flesh. 
Jesus is the fleshed out truth about God. He reveals more to us what God is like. So let's consider what God is like. I read this last year, but this may be an annual thing that I read because I love it so much. But I want you to consider what God is like. This is from um, a poem written by James Allen Francis called One Solitary Life. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 21 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliament that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. We see the kind of person that Jesus is that we have to, like you have to deal with him, Just not even on a, on a faith level, but on a historical level. Jesus has had this kind of impact in the world. So if Jesus is the fleshed out truth about who God is, what is he like? What does he do? Second point, what Jesus does. I want you to see in verse five that Jesus is the light who shines in the darkness. And then later in verse nine, John continues and says, the light comes into the world. What this means is that Jesus does not shy away from the darkness in our life. He's not repulsed by it. He's not put off by it. Uh, One time when, uh, I can't remember if I was in high school maybe, uh, was at a friend's lake house and we had been playing ping pong in their downstairs and then we decided to go jump in the lake at night. Parents were gone, it's just us. Go out the back screen porch, go jump in the water, come back up about two hours later and we realized that we had left the back screen porch open, door wide open, and there was one light on in the entire lake house and it was in the, the bottom, <laughs> the bottom of uh, the, the house where we, or the basement where we had come out. And I mean, this is out in the middle of Alabama, right along the Tennessee River. How many bugs do you think were gathering? It was maybe 500, just all on the ceiling, all gathered around the light. They had all just swarmed in because they were drawn to the light. That's what bugs do. And what John is saying to us is Jesus is like the opposite of that. 
that Jesus, he is like light that is drawn to darkness. He actually wants to come to the dark recesses of your life and enter in there. Jesus doesn't want the bright, shiny parts of your life so much as he wants to come and meet you in the hidden places of your life, the dark places, the places you don't think anyone would ever want to see. That if anyone were to see it, they would laugh or scream or run away. That's what Jesus is drawn to. If, you, if, if you're somebody um, who has loved an addict, you get this. If there's an addict in your life that you love, you know what it means to feel drawn to the darkness in somebody's life. And if you're the loved one of an addict, you also know that it's, it's really hard to know how to respond to that. And a lot of times there's our own dysfunction that can come out of knowing how to respond to somebody who's struggling with an addiction, but you know how fixated that you, who aren't even the addict, can become on their addiction. How fixated and focused we can become on that. And I want you to, like, a huge reason for that is because you love that person and you know that that addiction is hurting them. You know that that darkness inside of them is bringing them pain. Actually, it's, it's seeking to destroy them. And so you're drawn to it. And while you may not always know the best ways to respond to it, you feel drawn to it, you think about it. You care about it because you care about them. And Jesus cares deeply about the darkness in your life and how it's destroying you. Jesus hates our sin because he loves us. But he doesn't stay distant from our darkness like judging it being the light over here and looking at your darkness and thinking about how bad it is and how bad you are. Instead, Jesus comes right into it. He enters into it. Jesus experienced what we experience. See that in verse 10 and 11. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Friends, Jesus knows what it's like to experience rejection. He knows what that's like, and he empathizes with us in it. A lot of y'all know that um, about this time last year, I lost all the hearing in my right ear. Um, it's just from some random viral infection that, um, that I got. And uh, about, I guess in February, I got a cochlear implant, um, and I've been learning to hear with it. It's going okay so far. Um, not great, not terrible, but I'm encouraged and feel like I'm heading on the right path with learning to hear with that. But when I got the operation, or when I was planning to get the operation, my audiologist said, hey, there's, there's a number of patients that, um, that I also have seen who've also suffered from sudden single-sided deafness. And uh, if you want to talk to them, here you go. They've agreed to, for anyone who wants to, uh, know what the operation's like, know what recovery's like, here they are, here's the list. And she's like, that guy's a co-pilot, she's a teacher, you know, just go down the list, call, call any one of them, here's the list. And those are the people that I wanted to talk to because they got it. 
sorry, I wanted to talk to y'all too about it, but like, you know, it was the ones of you who struggle with, uh, with, with deafness and sudden hearing loss that, man, I, I want to hear what it was like. I wanted to know how, how it's been for you. And the, and the same with the people on that list. I, I wanted somebody who could empathize with me and tell me what it's like. And what the scriptures are telling to us is that this is what God is like. That if you want a list of people who have gone into darkness and experienced all that the darkness can throw at them, if you want to know what it's like, if you want to know and talk to somebody who's experienced deep rejection, the Bible is handing you a list and the first name on it is Jesus. This is God. This is who God is. He empathizes with you in your weakness. He knows what it's like to be a human. He knows what it's like to be rejected. And behind most every hardworking private equity manager or lawyer or teacher or banker, behind most every hardworking CEO and analyst or homemaker or pastor, behind our hard work often is a kid who's terrified of being rejected. We're terrified of being rejected. We're terrified of what maybe our dads think about our work, what our moms think about the way that we spend our days, what our peers think about it. We are terrified of being rejected. We'll work our hands to the bone. We will moisturize and condition and tone and mercilessly exercise our bodies to not be rejected. We'll take 200 pictures with 200 fake smiles and put 200 filters on them to find just the right one because we are afraid of being rejected and yet Jesus empathizes with us. He was rejected. In fact, God entered into our rejection because he is so committed to us not experiencing the ultimate rejection of separation from him. He's committed to saving us so that what is said in verse 12 could be true to all who believe in his name. He can give the right to become children of God. That's my hope for y'all as we study. It's my hope for me as, a, as we look at this passage and this book that the apostle John has given to us together over the coming year, that we would see how committed God is to adopting weak, messy, sinful people like me and like you. Why take his word for it? Why believe that this is true? Why take the word made flesh? A friend of mine uh, who's a, a pastor named Brian Sorgenfry told me, he was a, also an RDF campus minister like I was, he told me about one of uh, his old students that he went and got coffee with uh, a couple years ago. And uh, she had graduated from Ole Miss where he was a campus minister and then had gone and worked in the Mississippi Delta in uh, a lower income school there. And one of the children that she was caring for as a second, in her second grade classroom was uh, a boy who had severe behavioral um, 
disorders. And he, could, he would become sometimes even physically violent um, in the classroom, and because she was kind of the only one there to stop him, he would often become physically violent with her. And um, so she had, she had um, bruises on her arm from all the, um, all the times that she'd been working with this boy. And actually, that's how they got to talking about this, because when she sat down to have coffee with my friend Brian, Brian asked her, but he said, what, what are those bruises on your arm? She tells him about this boy, and Brian's like, what, what is that like? And she, and she said, to his surprise, I'm so thankful for them. Why are you thankful for them? She said, because when I sit down and talk to his mother in my parent-teacher conference and his mother sees the bruises on my arm, she knows that I get it. She knows that I get what it's like to try to care for her son and that I'm doing the best that I can. Why trust this God? All the other gods you could trust. Why him? Because of the scars on his hands and his feet. Because he's so committed that God became flesh and dwelt among us and was rejected by us so that we could be his kids. So that he could adopt us into his family. This is who God is. This is the fleshed out truth about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. What would it look like to follow him? To trust him, even today, even this week, to really trust that you don't have to fear rejection from God because Jesus has gone before you. He's experienced it on the cross. And so he welcomes you actually to believe in him so that you could be embraced eternally by your maker who loves you, who's gone into the darkness for you, and who's risen to new life and is coming again. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the truth of your word and for the truth of your son who is your word made flesh. Help us to follow him. And as we follow him, would you make us more like him by the power of your spirit. We pray this in his name, amen.